Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Pleasure to be here with Dr. Alice Shalvi, who is an educator and women's rights activist who, among other things, taught in the English department of the Hebrew University, founded the English department at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev, headed Pelech, an experimental high school for girls, and served as rector of the Schechter Institute for Jewish Studies in Jerusalem. Dr. Shalvi, thank you so much for taking this time. Thank you for inviting me. So just to start, how did you end up as an activist in Israel? Well, I was educated in a very activist house. And my, uh, my father in particular was extremely active in religious Zionism. Uh, and uh, I think part of our, the general atmosphere in the house, in the home, was that you contribute to society uh, you do whatever you can. He himself was extremely involved in a number of voluntary organizations. And I would say he was my example and my mentor. Uh, and I began being active very early on, already at school, but then particularly at the university. I was at Cambridge and I was very active in the Jewish society, very active in Zionist politics. I was fortunate to be a delegate to the first Zionist Congress after the um, after World War II in Basel, uh, and I studied social work after I completed my degree in English literature because I wanted to be actively involved in Israeli life once society once I came on Aliyah, which I did immediately after finishing my studies. So there was uh, the principle was that if something needs to be done, you do it, and there was a lot to be done. So I did it. it was amazing, amazing, very inspiring. How has the status of women changed in Israeli society during your time in the state? Well, uh, it's changed significantly, I would say, in the last 20 years. We believed at first that we had equality. There was a myth of equality. It gradually became very clear that we weren't entirely equal. Women were relegated to more or less the traditional functions of wife, mother, homemaker, uh, which I don't denigrate in any respect, but you don't have equality in that respect. There was not equality in employment. Where women were employed, they earned less. They still earn less. We haven't made progress in that respect. Fewer women are to be found in high-ranking positions. Um, but the real turn, 
turnabout came as a result of American influence with the women's lib movement. A lot of things come to Israel from America, as you're probably aware. And it was in the 1980s that beginning in academia, actually, we became more and more aware that women weren't being promoted, that women were being paid less. And that led ultimately to action first in the universities and academia, and then with the impact of the women's movement even stronger, in 1984, the establishment of the Israel Women's Network, which I was fortunate to head, which really worked through litigation, legislation, and above all, consciousness raising to ensure a change in Israeli attitudes, particularly among women. A women's first thought when I started traveling around the country talking about this, everybody said, we don't need a women's liberation movement, we are equal. And they had to be taught actually that they weren't yet equal. And then gradually there has been a change, but it has still not a significant change. It seems we were going to have fewer women in the Knesset uh, in the upcoming elections, which are dominated by generals. And in the army, the army is still a dominating factor in determining status in civilian life. And as we see from one of the lists that running for the Knesset, if you've been the commander in chief of the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, the assumption is that you're fit to be prime minister, nothing less. Well, women don't serve equally in the IDF, even though they are advancing into areas from which they were previously excluded. But it's going to be many years before we have a woman commander in chief of the IDF, right? And as long as that is one key to equality, we're not going to see it. The other factor is religion the religious establishment, which is male-dominated, which is antiquated, right, ensures that as far as personal law, everything related to marriage, divorce, and so on, there's, there's absolutely no equality because we're still going by an outdated halakha, and we have no civil marriage or divorce in Israel. And those two factors, the army and the rabbinate, the official rabbinate, are two major factors in keeping women from achieving true equality in Israel. Fascinating. Okay, so moving, uh, as you've started to move from the societal realm to the religious realm, and unfortunately those, as you mentioned, are interconnected with the chief yeah. and its hold over the state, uh, the ultra-Orthodox, the Haredi hold over uh, the status of religion. How have, uh, on the educational front, how has the status of Orthodox women's education changed during your time in Israel? Enormously, and I take credit for it to yeah, the school that I headed because it was the only school for girls wow. of which Talmud was a compulsory subject, right? And if you don't have knowledge, knowledge is key to power. Knowledge is easy is power. As long as you can't talk on equal terms, as far as knowledge is concerned, you can't cite the sources that are used against you, right, and argue against those sources, citing other contrary sources. And thank God in Judaism, there are always contrary sources, right? There's always a debate and discourse in Judaism, right? But once you have the education and you can argue on 
an equal basis, then you've got the beginnings towards equality. And I, I would say that today, the most significant progress that has been made and is being made in women's status is in orthodox women, in, in orthodox society, modern orthodox, obviously, except that it's also beginning to creep into the Haredi society, where the women are the income earners, right? The men go to yeshiva, they don't earn. The women, admittedly, they have the children, they run the house, but they are also increasingly well-educated. More Haredi women are attending universities than ever before and gaining skills which enable them to be the real income earners at a significant level. And once you're the main income earner, you have a sense of empowerment even if you remain wife, mother, homemaker, but you're also an empowered wife, mother, and head. So I see the advance in Orthodox women's status and through their increased consciousness as being, I would say, the outstanding achievement in modern Israeli society. My understanding, by the way, is what you mentioned that the number one sort of entry point for the yeshivish Haredi world to enter into women's rights, enter into feminism, which has a long way to go, is precisely through this um, secular education and workplace empowerment because of financial necessity. Is that right? Is that right. the entry point? Exactly. Right. Okay. So on a personal note, you know, uh, my wife and I are blessed with four young children and um, we're also foster parents. So kids come in and out of the house. Wow. If I understand correctly, you're the mother of six children. Um, and I wonder how you balanced uh, your incredible accomplishments also while, while raising a family. It's something that my wife and I struggle with. Well, I had an extremely supportive partner. We had a totally egalitarian marriage, which in our time was not altogether customary, uh, but it was clear from the first because I was also working. And if that's when we first married, I was earning more than my husband was earning. Uh, and, but he was brought up in a very egalitarian home. Uh, well, no, I wouldn't put it that way, but his mother ensured that he got an egalitarian education. He was the, the oldest son and he felt that he had a duty, just as I felt in my home, that in the home he had something to do, he had something to contribute. And he brought that into the marriage. So that's the first thing. I think if you have total equality, total sharing, right, uh, of the household and parenting duties, then it's much easier to, you know, to combine the two. It isn't left to one or the other. It, mean, it meant, for example, that when I started uh, heading Pellet School, and that was the first time I had a real full-time job because a university is not a full-time job in the sense of having to be out of the house from eight in the morning till four in the afternoon. So when I went to Pellet in 1975, uh, it was the first time I and not he was the one who was away from home the whole day. And he, it was at that stage that he stepped in 
and took over a lot of the household duties, which included, he was able to do it because he had very flexible hours at his work, right? He was able to be home when the children came home for lunch. And as a result, he started cooking. And whereas I'm a good cook, but I'm not, you know, I make the run of the mill stuff. And he took to cooking, he made delicious gourmet food just at a time when our children were able to appreciate it. And they would bring their friends home and the friends would be rather startled to see a father wearing an apron and serving lunch. But the children got used to it, right? And we got used to it. So that's the key. I would say the key to being a happy couple and a happy family is as far as possible to share the duties and responsibilities and not leave certain things exclusively to one person. Beautiful, beautiful. So egalitarianism in society. But yes. let me just add, this is flexible. It may change over time. It depends. When the children are young, there's one situation. Once they're grown up, then the sharing becomes something of a different kind. Right, right, right. Beautiful. So egalitarianism in society, in religious circles, in the home, shared duties and responsibilities. My last question for you, um, you know, we live in a complex time, a polarized time, and I wonder what advice you might have for future activists, future change makers who feel precisely, like you said, that in some areas we've moved forward, but in some areas not at all, like in, in, uh, in pay equity. Um, and so I wonder what advice you might have uh, in general or in specific. Well, my advice is be informed, first of all. Know what's going on. Know the facts. And I find a lot of people don't really know what's going on. They, they're turned off the news. We're so bombarded with fake news that we no longer consume news correctly. But know the facts, not just through news reports. See where there's a problem and see how you can help to change matters, how you can be personally involved in making the world a better place. Tikkun olam, I would say, and stick to it. Be consistent. Find your goal. You can't do everything. Find your specific niche and do the best. And once you finish that, which of course you never do, find another niche. Amazing, amazing. Wishing you so many continued blessings in all your work. It's inspiring that you give us this time. Thank you so much. Thank you.